Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will be partakers of the consolation. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened without measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us, you also helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truths that it holds, for the treasures that it brings to our lives. Lord, I pray this morning that you would encourage our hearts, not only through this lesson, but through this entire book. Lord, we thank you for this letter that Paul wrote to this struggling church. Misunderstandings had occurred between them, how he wanted them to know the truth. Lord, we too want to know the truth. So we ask that you speak to us through your word this morning and in the mornings to come. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. His rampage started a little past midnight on Sunday, December 9th, 2007. 24-year-old Matthew Murray showed up at the Youth with a Mission Training Center in Arvada, Colorado, and asked to stay the night. When they told him no, Murray pulled out a pistol, and he opened fire, killing two people and wounding two more. Later that same day, Murray paid a visit to New Life Church in Colorado Springs, where he continued to spread his terror, fatally shooting two people and wounding three others. He was finally stopped by a member of the New Life security team. The former police officer was thankfully carrying a concealed weapon that morning at church. Matthew Murray had suffered for years with severe mental problems. He had exhibited strange behaviors, claimed to hear voices, resisted any help. He blamed his problems on Christianity and felt that God had let him down. After the shootings, a letter to God was found in the back seat of Murray's car. In his depression, he had asked God, why didn't any changes occur or any love or help come when I accepted you as Lord and Savior? Obviously, Murray had many problems, 
but he had certainly fallen victim to a mistake many folks make regarding Christianity. They think that becoming a Christian guarantees them a totally happy life, a trouble-free life. Immediately, the storm's clear. The sun comes out. The bills get paid. Worries vanish, and suddenly food appears on the table. Here's an assumption that is as old as our text. For that was the mistake made by the church at Corinth. They assumed that a servant of God would see only blessing. Surely an almighty God would give birth to an always happy people. Wouldn't you think that God intends to make his people healthy and wealthy? That a powerful God would have prosperous kids? That's what Matthew Murray thought. And he became violently angry when his assumptions proved to be not true after all. When Jesus enters a person's life, he does bring love and help and change. But that transformation doesn't always translate into more pleasant circumstances. Yes, changes take place in me spiritually, in the believer's heart, but their cancer might remain. The repentant prisoner isn't guaranteed a commuted sentence. Your estranged wife may or may not come home to you. It could still take a while before you get the job that you need. You see, Paul was an amazing Christian. No one in the history of the church had a bolder, more daring, more courageous, more loving faith than the Apostle Paul. Yet his life was riddled with hardships. In fact, when God first called Paul, this is what he said of him. I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And this is what caused the Corinthians to doubt the legitimacy of Paul's ministry. Here's what they assumed. Since God always blesses his kids and Paul is always in hot water, then how can Paul truly be of God? You see, Paul's life and ministry stood as a contradiction to the misconceptions of the Corinthians. They figured that if you were a church leader who followed God, you would be strong and sophisticated and a celebrity and rich. Yet Paul was weak. And he was willing to appear foolish. He was humble and unassuming. He even had financial needs. The Corinthians wanted leaders with swag, man. They wanted to follow the high and mighty. The hip pastor. Yet Paul gloried in his weaknesses. He preached the foolishness of the cross. As a vessel of God, rather than think of himself as some ornate, beautiful glass vase, he called himself a simple clay jar. And the reason he states later in chapter 4, verse 7, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Paul knew that all the glory belongs to God. And Paul's goal was to focus people's attention on the contents of the vessel, not the vessel itself. On the message, not the messenger. You see, 2 Corinthians is a tutorial on authentic Christianity. Not the happy hype many modern day preachers extol. In this letter, Paul examines Christianity right where the rubber meets the road. He challenges us to correct our expectations and trust God for what he really promises. Well, the letter begins... 
Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. As we'll see, because Paul didn't act and look like the Corinthians thought an apostle should act and look, some of the folks in the Corinthian church began to doubt Paul's apostleship. This is why he states from the outset, he was an apostle with all its authority by the will of God. His leadership position in the church wasn't granted by other men or some council. It certainly wasn't self-assumed. Paul was called by God. It was God's will for him to be a leader. And he writes along with his protege, Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia. Corinth was the city. Achaia was the region. This letter was to be read by the Corinthians, but then passed along to the neighboring churches. And of course, this wasn't Paul's first letter to or experience with the Corinthians. It's not our first experience with them either. Paul knew them well, and so do we, as we studied through 1 Corinthians just this past spring. Now, Acts chapter 18 describes Paul's initial visit to Corinth in the year 52 A.D., He launched a thriving church there in this seaport city. You see, Athens and Sparta were the traditional centers of Greek finance and culture. Corinth was the upstart. This city was a frontier town, relatively new. It was full of opportunity. Corinth was attracting immigrants from all over the empire. And like most boom towns, Corinth had a wild side. Away from home, flush with cash, The working class crowd in Corinth looked for ways to spend their time and ease their loneliness. Thus, Corinth became a sports capital and a raucous party town. Prostitution and vice were rampant in Corinth. Hey, it was Mardi Gras every night. Well, Paul's church planning had lasted 18 months before he left Corinth and he returned to his home church in Syria. Later, on his third missionary journey, Paul came to Ephesus in Asia, and that's where he heard that there was trouble in the church at Corinth. Rather than be the church in the world, a light and a witness, the world had gotten into this church. Blatant sin, bad attitudes among the believers in Corinth had become a blemish on Christianity, and Paul corrected their carnality by writing them a letter. It was from Ephesus that he penned 1 Corinthians. It was a call to repent. It was an attempt to set the church in order. It was sent to Corinth via Paul's co-worker, a man named Titus. Now, I'm sure you've heard the old saying, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Well, apparently that adage didn't exactly apply to Paul's relationship to the Corinthians. For his reaction Their reaction to the letter was a mixed bag. Some of the Corinthians repented. They showed a godly sorrow that led to change. But others resented. How dare Paul rebuke us? Who does he think he is? And critics in Corinth began to question Paul's authority. They cast doubt on his integrity, his honesty, even his courage. You see, it was one thing to disagree with Paul, but the Corinthians resorted to mudslinging and slander. Absence doesn't always make the heart grow fonder. Well, news of the church's reaction to 1 Corinthians came to Paul while he was in Macedonia. And it was there that he penned 
another letter, a follow-up letter to 1 Corinthians. And guess what we now call it? We have a real creative name for it. 2 Corinthians. There you go. In this letter, Paul defends himself and his ministry. In places here, he grows bold. He'll even confront his accusers. You see, 2 Corinthians is an emotionally charged letter. Paul is writing from his heart, out of his pain. His feelings are raw and real. The apostle pleads his case in 2 Corinthians as he does nowhere else. And this makes 2 Corinthians an important book for everyone who has ambitions to serve the Lord. What I've said of the Christian life also applies to Christian ministry. Serving the Lord is not always easy and blissful and hassle-free. Christian ministry is about helping hurting people. And soon you discover that hurting people often hurt people. That means if you're not careful, ministry can be hazardous to your own spiritual health. Ministry can get messy. This is why lifeguards are taught never to jump in and swim directly to a drowning man. While the frantic victim, he's trying to survive. He might overcome the lifeguard and pull him under with him. The best strategy is to toss him out a lifeline. And the application for Christian service is that a good heart, a caring, well-meaning attitude is not the only thing we need in ministry. There is a right way and a wrong way to minister to spiritually drowning people. This is why 2 Corinthians is so timely for us. I look out at our church and I see that we have a church full of servants. Many of you have grown in Christ and now you want to serve Him. Well, we need to add wisdom to our willingness. 2 Corinthians will help us with how. It's interesting, despite the multiple problems and personal attacks that Paul had to address with the believers at Corinth, he never stopped respecting who they were in Christ. In fact, in verse 1, he refers to them by the lofty title, the Church of God. And then he even considers them saints, no less. You know, today that term saint, it has multiple meanings. For one, it refers to a football team over there in New Orleans that no Atlanta resident should ever like or even cheer for. Those despicable saints. It also refers to a super Christian, somebody with great unusual faith. We think, oh, they're a saint. But in reality, the word saint simply means for special use. And if you're in Christ, you are of special use to the master. You've been bought with a price. You are God's special possession and he wants to do something through you. You are his saint. And Paul greets these saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As always, Paul begins his letters with grace and peace. It's grace that produces peace. To know that God accepts me just as I am and right where I'm at, that brings me great peace. I can rest from the pressure of always having to measure up. For it's through faith and faith alone that I have a right standing with God. Isn't that glorious? He wishes them grace and peace. And then he writes, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is a wonderful phrase. 
It appears three times in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul uses these same words to praise God for his past blessings, for the favor that he's bestowed on all believers. There he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. This phrase also appears in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter praises God with these same words for our future blessings, the favor we'll receive when Jesus returns. But here in 2 Corinthians, Paul praises God not for his past blessings, or even for his future glories. But he praises God with these words for his present help and comfort even in the midst of our trials. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Now, if you were a first century pagan living in Greece... You are reading this passage for the very first time. These words would jump off the page. You wouldn't recognize this title for God. You'd be shocked. No one familiar with the Greek pantheon of gods would have ever thought of a God who specialized in comfort and who majored on mercy. No, the Greek gods, they threw down thunderbolts. When their capricious whims were violated, they were quick to seek retribution. They were known for their power, lust, envy, greed, vengeance, not for mercy and comfort. And yet Paul tells us that the true God is the Father of mercies. In Hebrew culture, to use the expression the Father of was the same as saying the originator of. Jesus called Satan the Father of lies. Why? Because he told the first one. Satan invented deceit. But as the father of mercy, God is the originator of mercy. Now consider this. The Christian God, the God of your Bible, is the first mind to ever think of extending mercy. Did you know that our God holds the patent on mercy and comfort? It's his idea. The Bible tells us in Exodus 20 verse 6 that God shows mercy to thousands Numbers 14 verse 18 tells us, the Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy. Psalm 136 repeats time and time again, his mercy endures forever. In other words, it never runs out. God has an unlimited supply of mercy and comfort. In fact, Ephesians 2 verse 4 tells us, God is rich in mercy. Aren't you glad God is rich in what we need most? He has mercy enough to cancel every sin of every sinner and still have an abundance of mercy left over. It's true, our God doesn't promise to shelter us from struggles and difficulties, but He does guarantee us His mercy and comfort in the midst of those hardships. Reminds me of the little boy who was ushering at a wedding. A veteran usher explained to the young guy, he said, before you escort a lady down the aisle, You need to ask her now, is she a guest of the bride or is she a guest of the groom? You need to put the groom's guests on one side and you need to put the bride's guests on the other side. 
that's not exactly the way it came out of the little guy's mouth. At the wedding, the new usher was overheard asking, Ma'am, whose side are you on? One thing is certain, if you're in Christ Jesus, the Father of mercy and the God of all comfort is on your side. As Paul writes in Romans 8 verse 31, If God is for us, who can be against us? The true God doesn't shelter us from pain and suffering, but He is a God who cares for us and comforts us and shows amazing amounts of mercy. Paul says as much in verse 4. He refers to our Father God as He who comforts us in all our tribulation. This English word comfort is from two Latin words. It means with strength. Sure, God lets us cry on His shoulder just long enough to release our pain. He doesn't let us sulk. God's mercy is accompanied by His strength. It's mercy with strength. It's comfort with strength. Understand, God joins nobody's pity party. Reminds me of a young mother who wrote, it was one of the worst days of my life. The washing machine broke down. The telephone kept ringing. My head ached. The mail man brought a bill that I had no money to pay. She said, almost to the breaking point, I lifted my one-year-old into his high chair, leaned my head against the tray, and began to cry. Without a word, my son took his pacifier out of his mouth and stuck it into mine. (laughs) Hey, I know a lot of people who like to share pacifiers. They like to just get together and nurse each other's wounds, just cry together over spilt milk. But this is not the comfort that God specializes in. His comfort is more than a pacifier. God gives you strength and power and energy to rise up in His Spirit and to tackle the challenges that you face. God's comfort is like the comfort I used to give to the baseball players when I was coaching. Whenever they'd get up to bat and they'd get hit by an errant fastball. Oh, I'd check them out for serious injury, and then maybe I'd wipe away their tears. But after 30 seconds or so, I'd always reach down and grab some dirt, and I'd just rub it on the sore. And I'd tell them it's time to shake it off and take first base. We don't have time to lick our wounds. We don't have time to nurse our boo-boos. Hey, look on the bright side. You just got to go to first. My high school football coach, he was a real hard nose. He had a rule on our team. If you were seriously injured... You were supposed to stay on the ground, don't move a muscle, let the trainer come on the field and assist you to the sidelines. But if all that happened to you was you got the breath knocked out of you, or you just pulled up with a cramp, you were to get off the field on your own as fast as you could, as our coach put it. I don't want anybody clapping for you just because you got hurt. At times we think we deserve applause just because we got injured. This isn't the case with God's comfort. Rather than sulk with us in our sorrows, He repairs us for the battle. Jesus is called the balm of Gilead. He's a poultice that sucks out the pain. But as one pastor put it, God's comfort has some strength in it, some teeth to it. Jesus refuses to assign us, any of us, to permanent disability. He heals us and He grows us to send us back into action. This Latin word for comfort is the word fortis, from which we get our term fortitude. We have victories to win. 
And it's God's comfort that toughens us for the battle. Well, Paul says in verse 4, God comforts us that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You know, it's been said God's comfort does not terminate in the one who receives it. He works in us in order to work through us. He comforts us to make us comforters. I love Peterson's paraphrase of verse 4. He says, God comes alongside us when we go through hard times. And before you know it, he brings us alongside someone else who's going through hard times so that we can be there for that person just as God was there for us. See, God wants to involve us in his work. But we have to go through the necessary preparation. What kind of impact do you think you'll have on suffering people if God saves you and then insulates you from all trouble? You think anybody's going to listen to you? If you never got sick or stubbed your toe or sliced your tee shot or finished last or got bummed out, do you really think the people around you are going to listen when you talk to them about God's comforts and mercies? What would you say to your friends if, you'd ne- if they had never experienced the hurt that you're feeling? If, you'd, if they had never felt the throb of your pain, would you think they'd have much to say to you? Probably not. How could they help you at all? Oh, sure, we could quote some verses at them, pass out some sound advice, but how far does that alone wiggle its way down into our hearts if it's not laced with some empathy. The late Joe Bailey in his book, View from a Hearse, he talks about his experiences in the aftermath of losing one of his children. He writes, I was sitting there torn by grief. Someone came and talked of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved, except to wish he would go away. He finally did. Another person came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask me leading questions. He just sat beside me. Listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, and left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. If you lose a child or a spouse, I can visit with you. And I can spend a few hours saying all the right things. Oh, I've got plenty of truth that I can unload on your doorstep. But I know it won't be nearly as meaningful as a visit from someone who could say the right things bathed in the comfort they had received in the midst of that same pain. That kind of empathy is powerful. And even Jesus had to undergo the preparation for this ministry. Hebrews 4 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And what does this provoke? Let us therefore now come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, we can confidently approach Jesus for help because he knows firsthand the help that we need. When my son Zach was three or four years old, he spent the night with his grandparents. 
Zach and my dad, they were in the den. They were playing cowboys. Toys, guns were, sorry ladies, but the toy guns were blazing back and forth. They were shooting each other. Villains and sheriffs were dropping like flies. And every time Zach got shot, he'd fall to the ground. Well, his granddaddy would run over and pull out his pretend knife, open up the shirt of the wounded cowboy, cut the bullet out of his chest, and then sew him back up right there on the spot. Then they'd start playing again. Well, at one point in the shootout, Grandma walked by. When all of a sudden Zach hit the deck, she jumped into the action. She opened up his shirt, took her knife, cut out the bullet, sewed him back up. But rather than popping up to continue to play, Zach just laid motionless on the floor. Finally, he looked up and he groaned. He said, Grandma, there's only one problem. They shot me in the leg. (laughs) And realized this is why Jesus is such an excellent comforter. For he knows exactly where you hurt. Hey, like you, Jesus has plumbed the depths of depression. Jesus knows the agony of a betrayal. He knows the pain of a cruel death. He has felt our sorrow to bring us his joy. Here's a provocative quote. If you are going to be used by God, he will take you through a multitude of experiences that are not meant for you at all. They are meant to make you useful in his hands. Think about that. The trial you're enduring, even as we speak, may ultimately have very little to do with you and your life. God is using it to prepare you to minister to someone at a time and in a way that will change their course forever. And what you're begrudging and resenting right now is what will qualify you to speak into that person's life later. It's a true statement. God does not comfort us to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. Empathy is one of the most powerful forces on earth. The knowledge that someone cares can reach into the deepest depression and lift a person out, but the person with empathy pays a price to obtain it. See, the tendency for us when we get hurt is to shut down, to lick our wounds, to just sit on the sidelines and sulk in our sadness. But the healing comes when we keep on caring and loving and reaching out to others. Understand this. Never forget it. All God's healers are wounded healers. Jesus leads the way here. Because of his wounds, he knows how to heal people who have been bruised and who have been broken. How much do you want to be used by God? That becomes the question. God is pleased. We are blessed. People come to Christ. The kingdom gets built. The devil gets defeated when we redeem our hurts and turn them into help. Well, Paul goes on in verse 5. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. In other words, God raises the level of his comfort in proportion to the suffering he calls on us to endure. He doesn't leave us hanging. He doesn't leave us in over our heads. As the Living Bible puts it, you can be sure that the more we undergo sufferings for Christ, the more he will shower us with his comfort and encouragement. It's like a morphine drip. You know, a hospital, hospitalized patient in severe pain, they're connected to an IV. 
And when their suffering rises, they push a button that increases their comfort. And this is how God's comfort works. Though God holds the button, in miracle ways, He adjusts His consolation to manage our grief. In verse 6, Paul goes on to speak of his suffering in relation to the Corinthians. He says, now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. For if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Paul's sufferings were largely tied to his efforts to bring the gospel to the Corinthians and to the people all around the world. The beatings and burdens, the stonings and shipwrecks, all the trials that he will enumerate later in this letter could have been avoided if Paul had just spent his life lying on the couch playing video games. But no, he got into trouble because he sought to be a help and an assistance. Ironically, it was his passion to see the Corinthians comforted that caused Paul to endure such affliction. Paul realizes that when these Corinthians develop that same desire, they'll begin to understand that the more we suffer, the more Christ gives us his comforts. But it was his affliction that caused them to doubt his legitimacy, at least in the beginning. Remember that false assumption? A servant of God will only see blessing. Thus, if Paul were truly of God, then why is his life so difficult? It was sort of a catch-22 for Paul. He suffered in his attempts to minister the gospel to the Greeks, but the Greeks saw his suffering as proof that he wasn't a minister of God. With these Corinthians, Paul was just in a no-win situation. He writes in verse 7, And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. Paul understands. They'll get it. They'll understand eventually. When they begin to partake of the sufferings, then they'll be able to experience the commiserate consolations. In his critics' eyes at this time, Paul couldn't win, but in his eyes, he couldn't lose. His hope was steadfast. He knows that if we suffer for Christ, then we will be comforted in Christ and by Christ, and Christ's comforts are always worth the effort. And then verse 8 tells us, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Apparently, there was a specific pressing hardship that Paul had to endure. While in Asia, probably the city of Ephesus, Paul had been overwhelmed. If it had been modern times, they might have branded him suicidal. Perhaps they would have prescribed him antidepressants. Paul admits, we despaired even of life. Like an old worn out dog, Paul wished God would just put him down. Just call him home. Just put him out of his misery. Imagine the great apostle suffered from depression. And he didn't try to cover it up. He wasn't ashamed of it. In fact, he prefaces verse 8. We do not want you to be ignorant. Paul wants all Christians to know that this can happen. Even God's servants can have bouts with the blues. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was often called the prince of preachers. Probably the greatest preacher since the apostle Paul. But he once confessed, 
I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful, I hope none of you ever gets to such extremes of wretchedness as I go. Even in the Bible, we find examples of mighty men who underwent frightful episodes of dejection. Elijah and Job and Jeremiah, they all explored the dregs of the dark night. Paul says here in verse 9, yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. Some Bible commentators think a warrant had been issued for Paul's arrest and execution. Whatever this sentence was, it was a dark time for Paul. And this happens. It happens to all Christians. Again, like the Corinthians, so often we assume that Christians only have sunny days and high times. And LOL, lots of laughs. Something is wrong if we find ourselves under a cloud or feeling a little low or having to wipe away a tear. But the truth that comes across so profoundly here in 2 Corinthians is that God's will for us encompasses not only blessing, but suffering, trials, as well as triumphs. And Paul explains why in verse 9. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Here is why God allows stress to invade the Christian's life. It strips away our self-confidence and it replaces it with God-confidence. Hey, it is through only trials that we really learn to trust. Often folks say, oh, God won't give you more than you can handle. You ever heard that? Yeah, you have. Some people think it's in the Bible. It's not. In fact, it's not true. Here, God overwhelms Paul. Why? So that he would learn to trust in God, not in his own resources. God does give us more than we can handle. It's only in those times that we learn how God comes through. Once there was a wife, she decided to clean out her husband's wardrobe. She was tired of his old-fashioned threads. But he objected. He said his taste in clothes was just fine. Well, the wife finally won the battle, as she often does in these situations. And she added the husband's old clothes to what she was offering at the garage sale. But when a lady shopper saw his clothes and started shouting, Great! These are the clothes I was looking for! This is exactly what I want! The husband sort of felt vindicated. He was just about to take a jab at his wife with his best, I told you so. When the lady added, perfect, these are the clothes for the scarecrow in my garden. (laughs) Hey, every Christian's diet needs a regular slice of humble pie. We need to be reminded that we're not all that. We're the servants. The power comes to us from God. You know, it's funny, I, I laugh every weekend. At our house, the trash pickup day is always on Monday morning. You know what that means? That means I always end my big day of ministry for Jesus, my big Sundays. I always end my big Sundays by rolling out my trash to the street. It's just a fitting reminder that God raises the dead. I just take out the trash. Verse 10 tells us it was God, not Paul, not you, not me, 
who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. If Jesus won the victory over death, then why would you think he would watch us flounder in life? If he delivered us once, he will deliver us again and again and again. Author Kent Hughes suggests this. The cycle of Christ's experience becomes the pattern for Paul in all serious Christians. Affliction, death, resurrection. In other words, to hammer home the message of the gospel, God repeats its principles over and over in our experience. Here's what happens to us. We are afflicted with a trial. That affliction, that trial results in some sort of death in our lives. And then out of that death, God works a resurrection. And this happens over and over with us. Maybe the affliction has to do with your business. Your company closes. A dream dies. Yet through it, God takes you in a new direction and resurrects a new opportunity for you. Affliction, death, resurrection. Perhaps your affliction is a troubled relationship. It hasn't worked out. Your love dies. And yet from the ashes of that relationship, God resurrects a wiser you, now ready for a new start. Again, affliction, death, resurrection. C.S. Lewis once said, nothing that has not died will be resurrected. To know the resurrection power of Jesus, we have to taste some sort of death. Thus, affliction, death, resurrection is not only an article of the Christian faith, it is ingrained in every Christian life. It is a cyclical reminder of God's faithfulness to us. And of the truths of the gospel. And notice how Paul finishes his thoughts here on Christ's great deliverance. He tells us how we can assist. He says, you also helping together in prayer for us. The picture here is of several people working as one to lift up a heavy object. And isn't this what we do in prayer? Life is full of objects too heavy to lift. Obstacles too entrenched to move, mountains too high to climb, that is, on our own. But through prayer, we can join forces and we can overcome together. And we do it for a reason that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Paul's saying, When many people pray, then many people will praise. Praying together ensures that we'll be rejoicing together. And that's Paul's hope for the Corinthians. To end their misconceptions and to end up praising God with them. Next week we'll finish 2 Corinthians chapter 1. But I think we're off to a good start.